This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me today, well, we're doing one of our special editions of A Bit of Culture, where instead of having the panel, we, we speak to one person so that we can really concentrate on one particular issue. And I, I don't know about you folks, but I am fascinated by the possibilities of, are there any commonalities, cultural and therefore political commonalities, within the nations and communities of Southeast Asia? Because for me, I drove up to Thailand and it felt like not just a foreign country, not our neighbor, but somewhere so very far away. The language is so completely different. And I thought that the best person to perhaps help us discuss this, he's a journalist. Well, he was a journalist, I guess. Once a journalist, always a journalist. He is not Asian, but he arrived in uh, Indonesia back in 1987, where he was working for the BBC. Um, and he was... There he transferred across to the Far Eastern Economic Review. He uh, was posted out to here in Kuala Lumpur in the early 90s. He's also worked in Bangkok, and he became the uh, editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review, um, and therefore based in Hong Kong, when Hong Kong was still Hong Kong. And latterly, he has now become the Asia Regional Director for the Center for, for Humanitarian Dialogue, which is a Swiss-based private foundation that attempts to facilitate dialogue to resolve armed conflicts. Uh, and we will be talking about that. And his name is Michael Vatikiotis. Hello, Michael. Hi, Cam. Nice to be here. Uh, I just realized I have forgotten things. You also you've written a number of books, including recently uh, Blood and Silk, which really talks about your time here in uh, Southeast Asia. And you've also written not just the nonfiction, but you write fiction as well. Um, so, well, you, you've written a lot of words about Southeast Asia. Uh, Michael, can I just start off by, by asking an obvious question, which is that uh, you've been out here for a long time, but you are uh, a redhead foreign devil, um, uh, Guaylo, uh, Farang, Boule, uh, Matsale. <laughs> but do you think that you have a, a right to, to write about this place, to speak about Southeast Asia? Well, it's a question that I think is increasingly asked of many aspects of the scholarship of different cultures and the coverage of different cultures, especially in a world where you have this notion of cultural appropriation. Fortunately, this plague has not yet infected this part of the world, where historically um, Southeast Asia has been a, a rather open-faced region. And a lot of the scholarship of the region has been conducted historically from outside um, and continues to be conducted from outside. But at the same time, there's a high degree of tolerance on the part of Southeast Asians who are often intrigued and interested by, by what outsiders make of them, perhaps reflecting a sort of sense of comfort within their own skin um, and, and not a sort of um, knee-jerk prejudice towards outsiders. Having said that, um, Southeast Asia as a collection of societies um, tends to be rather, um, and I won't, I, see, I use the word insular in its non-geographic context. The communities are not terribly well connected to one another. The societies are not terribly well known to one another. And that's very much been a product 
of the fact that for much of the last 70 years of nation building, not a lot of people have traveled between the, the countries. And as you noted in your introduction, when you travel from Malaysia to Thailand, you know, you do cross a very sort of rigid cultural boundary. I think, believe the Malay-speaking world more or less ends at a place called Tachanat in Patani province, and north of which everyone speaks Thai. And you, you no longer see goats, but you see pigs. You know, it's a very sort of sudden boundary. And I think that particularly between the Malay and the Thai-speaking world, there is no kind of infusion. I mean, in Kelantan, to be sure, you have Thai Buddhist temples, and you've had a long tradition of, of Thai culture or the derivative of, from Thai culture, from the Ramayana in the court culture of, of Kelantan. So there is some overlap. But by and large, in the modern context, very little at all. And, you know, I mean, I remember moving from Indonesia to Malaysia in 1991. And, and I, I got culture shock in Malaysia, um, a different country, despite ostensibly speaking, at least at the root of things, the same language and having very similar cultural, later discovering that many people in Johor are closer to the Javanese culture and, and in fact are of Javanese native stock. But nonetheless, by the time I'd reached Southeast Asia, you'd had more than half a century of, of nation building. And sovereignty and boundaries in Southeast Asia are very hard concepts. Um, they're not fungible. So I think that explains why it's very difficult to see when you cross these borders, very sim you know, similar aspects to culture. I mean, there are, anthropologically speaking, there are similarities. Um, you know, the, the, the way in which people cultivate rice at a very basic level, um, some of the aspects of family organization, organization of, of the states, institutions, there are common factors. Great respect for preserving face, avoiding conflict, and to some extent, an infuriating lack of the ability to take responsibility for, every, for anything. These are innate Southeast Asian characteristics. But, you know, in terms of language, often religion, of course, determining a lot of this. But as I said, even between Indonesia and Malaysia, despite the majority of both countries being Muslim, they are very different. They approach their cultures very differently. I, I'm, I've been spending a lot of time recently reading about uh, pre-colonial Southeast Asian, maritime Southeast Asia. And one of the things that came really struck me is actually, uh, you know, we've gotten used to the nation state boundaries, but geographic difference. If a place is a fertile place like Java, like Bali, where you can grow abundant rice, a surplus of rice, as opposed to somewhere like the peninsula, which is a very infertile place. And so therefore you have to trade for things like rice. I sort of found that, you know, that, that farming, and trading those histories, deep histories, sort of make a, a a deep difference. But then the European empires came, and then of course imposed another set of uh, rules and uh, ways of seeing and ways of governing. I mean, have you felt empire as you as you've traveled around? I think that's right, and I think in one very specific context, the the European intrusions into Southeast Asia reordered to a very great extent, the relationship between different components of society. And the classic manifestation of this was, of course, the plural societies of the Netherlands, East Indies, and Burma, uh, and Malaysia too, uh, Malaya, as it would have been in those days, which meant that 
for the Brits and the Dutch, and for the Brits in particular, for the, for the British in, in Burma and in Malaya, the simplest way to control colonial subjects was to keep them divided and also to, to create a division of labor by importing large numbers of Tamils and, and Chinese to work the, the plantations of Malaya, um, to work as clerks and civil servants in Burma. And for the Dutch, similarly using the Chinese and Eurasians and the aristocracy to essentially control the population. And these plural societies were a very convenient way of controlling large masses of people without too much difficulty because you kept people apart. You didn't permit them to combine into sort of integrated, unified wholes, which could then rise up against colonial rule. Now, the interesting thing about this, of course, is that it wasn't really a, a European import. Um, to some extent, all the British were doing and the Dutch were essentially mimicking the Hindu caste system, uh, where rulers, traditional rulers in mainland Southeast Asia, certainly, but also across the islands, used the Hindu caste system to categorize and distinguish between different levels of society, which made them easy to control. And so in many ways, what, what the colonials did was simply adopt, as we know they did in the case of Malaya, where they adopted, if you like, wholesale the, the, the ruling sultans to control their populations. They simply adopted an existing aspect of society, but I think magnified it in a way that was, to my mind, bequeathed a legacy of, of division and prejudice when it came to the sort of post-colonial national context. And so we see in contemporary Burma, contemporary Malaysia, institutionalized racism that I think stemmed from that legacy. And you know, for me, it becomes very personal because my own background as a, as a Levantine, um, my parents grew up, born and grew, grew up in the Middle East, where the Ottomans, where their grandparents and parents, um, from, from their parents and grandparents' time, uh, had a very sort of relaxed form of pluralism of laissez-faire, if you like, the millet system, where communities essentially governed themselves, as long as they didn't give any trouble, they, they didn't have to convert to Islam um, and they were free to, to trade and prosper. But when the colonial powers arrived, they imposed, I mean, the best way of putting it is, is partition, essentially. They partitioned these societies. And they, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a very well-known fact that what we see today in contemporary Jerusalem with all the different religious quarters was not the historical um, existence of the city until 1917. And in 1917, General Allenby arrived, occupied Jerusalem and set about settling everyone in different quarters. Partition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Didn't know that. So partition, is, partition and division is essentially the most serious and important legacy of colonial rule. Mm. But you you arrived as a, a fresh-faced young man in the nine, in the late nineteen eighties, um, you know, long long after that colonial experience. You yourself were not part of that uh, order. Um, did you, from the things that you've seen, though, uh, especially when you first arrived, you arrived in in a country where Suharto was at his peak, and later you you went back and you witnessed the violent end. 
And one of the things I think is a, a misconception, perhaps, um, is the idea of the strongman, which I think a lot of people seem to think is, is an Asian thing, that the need, the need for a strong leader, uh, even a violent leader. Is this something that, that, that you witnessed that you felt was um, a distinctly Asian thing? Not at all. But it, it was very much a characteristic of that pre-21st century period. Um, the last half century of the 20th century generated and produced a number of strong, charismatic leaders who many of them had emerged from the colonial struggle, like Sukarno in Indonesia, Tunku Abdul Rahman in Malaysia, but also subsequently Mahathir Mohammed. They were very much products of the colonial age. Um, and they were charismatic in Kuan Yu, another one. They were charismatic in part and successful because they were able to straddle the colonial and the, the pre-colonial, the post-colonial and the pre-colonial uh, order. Um, Lee Kuan Yew had the benefit of a, a colonial education. Um, Mahathir Mohammed always very bitter about the fact that he didn't. Um, Suharto worked for the Dutch colonial militia and eventually the Japanese occupied forces. And so it was very much imbued with the sort of the colonial imposition of order. Um, and I think this, this, this underscored the extent to which they were successful as strong leaders, strong men, so to speak. Um, but what we've seen in the last 20 years or so is that democratic transitions successful or unsuccessful, have essentially undermined and the, the tradition of the strongman because leaders now come and go with more regularity and frequency um, for one reason or another, not always good ones. And I think that that era of the strongman is, is, is over as it is in many, many other parts of the world. And we see in Africa, it, it's, it's, it's receding as well. Um, but I don't think it was particularly Asian. I think it was a product of the transition between those two periods, the colonial and post-colonial, um, and the the absence or the the deficits of the deficit of democracy um, and and um, political pluralism. Some people would argue that we now have less effective leaders. We have leaders who come and go, not very strong, not particularly anchored to ideas or idealism, um, not very inspiring. Um, contemporary Malaysia is, is very much in that pickle, I think, to some extent. A charisma deficit is perhaps the new norm. Well, you know, it takes a while to, to establish and assert um, yourself as a leader, especially in, in, in elite systems that are very paternalistic. Um, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight. And, and if you're just around for four or five years, um, you know, someone else takes your place, and the whole process begins again. It's much more difficult. The example that I, I know best is Indonesia. I think after 1998, when Suharto fell, and you had a succession of presidents, good and bad, a revolving door, really, roughly once every five years, 10 years um, at the most. And I think Indonesians adjusted to the notion that was, what was more important was that they could choose their leader. And they chose the leader, for better or worse, that they wanted. And then you know, after five years, they had an opportunity to, to boot them out of power. And, and besides, there's a term, maximum limit of two terms. 
Mm. Um, now, the current president, Jokowi, is said to be contemplating a third term um, by popular acclamation, which would be a real setback for the country, because I think Indonesians have... That would require a change in the constitution, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 because the I mean I I witnessed it myself that uh, I I was there during the Sahato time and I visited afterwards uh, immediately afterwards the the speed and the excitement and indeed the I don't want to sound patronizing the sophistication the maturity that that Indonesians uh, grabbed hold of um, new democratic spaces and and in such a way that it was like you're not going to take this away from us again that you know this is how we are now. That's right. Indonesians, I've covered every single election since 2004, uh, every presidential election, and Indonesians, you know, they know that they're not necessarily going to make the right choice every time, but they absolutely value that choice. Um, and, and, that, and that's most, most important for them, that they get to choose as individuals their leader. Yeah, with humor and with mockery, <laughs> which I have found when I was watching the TV uh, some of the comedy shows that they had on there, it, it, the, the difference between watching Suharto speak for four hours without break and then suddenly having these uh, comedy shows that were just devastatingly satirical. It was, it was really exciting. But we're going to take a, a quick break. But in a moment, I'd like to, um, I'd like to talk about uh, a previous life uh, with Michael. I'm not sure if it is a previous, um, with journalism in Southeast Asia, when we come back on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, and a special one-on-one -on -one with the ex-journalist, Michael Vaticiotis. And I'd like to talk about journalism now, Michael, because you were part of that, well, I didn't know it at the time, but perhaps it was a golden age. It's a, it's a gone age now, where there were these regional uh, magazines like Asia Week, like Far, your Far Eastern Economic Review, which um, would tell the stories from within these different countries in one single package. And that's gone now. Um, and I, I cannot see that it's really being replaced by anywhere. So once upon a time, I could have learned in this in a few pages after reading something about Indonesia, I, I would learn something about the Philippines. I, the Philippines now has become a mystery to me. Was it a golden age? And has it gone? Is journalism, is your journalism a thing of the past and, and never to be seen again? I get asked this question a lot. And I'm very conscious of the fact that it would be easy to say that, you know, the era, my era of written journalism, a great era, actually, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Far Eastern Economic Review and Asia Week, and, and not just foreigners, but also tremendous local journalists like K Das, in particular in Malaysia, um, and others from Southeast Asia, we really looked up to. But I think we have to recognize that news gathering hasn't eased in any way. Um, it's just the way in which you consume news has changed. And it's mostly on social media platforms, and there's more of it, frankly. Um, I guess the complaint would be that the news that you read today is not curated or moderated with quite the same care and attention that it was, you know, when there was a single stream through a magazine or a wire service um, or a television station, a cable network station. And now it's just a stream of Twitter feeds. Um, I follow very closely what's happening in Myanmar and I follow a hashtag um, 
what's happening in Myanmar, hashtag what's happening in Myanmar. And the speed at which that, that Twitter feed just rolls on the screen, you know, with suddenly hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Burmese who've just joined Twitter in the last, you know, six months, all having their say, it's an extraordinary amount of information. Um, and it's not curated and it's not moderated and it's not edited. Um, and you have to be very careful how you use that. Um, and then, you, of course, you have commentators. You have lots and lots of commentators, people like myself, who can no longer be paid a daily wage to go out and do reporting, but sit back on their computers and think they know what they're talking about when they pen an op-ed on some regional issue. There's too much of that, I'm afraid. Not enough reporting and an awful lot of commentary. But um, someone's got to pay for the reporting. Exactly. And that, that reporting is not be, that reporting is now done by citizens rather than by journalists. So hence the Twitter feed. And then commentators, journalists have become commentators who don't have the budget to go out and report things, but can do so from their from their laptops or phones just by reading Twitter feeds. I and I don't know if I'm imagining this, but I mean I've I've watched the Twitter feeds for, for various um, conflagrations. And I found that people do become more discerning, more disciplined. Start asking, what are your sources? And, and start asking for uh, you know, detailed information and, and, and not running with the, the hyperbole and the, the drama. But it can be, be age-specific. Older people who spent their entire lives having work curated for them would assume that everything that they hear is a truth, the truth. Whereas I find that younger people, and I'm not sure if I'm imagining this, younger people are saying, what are your sources? Um, so perhaps people are adapting to this uncurated, uh, unedited landscape um, and trying to, to remain calm. One does hope so. And I, I think that there's an awful lot of skepticism, as you say, in the younger generation about sources in general, um, other than perhaps their own view of themselves. But I do think that what's coming back in this region are aggregators of media. Um, here in Thailand, for instance, there are a range of online publications that are really quite high, quite high quality, um, but they only exist online. And they have good reporters who do actually write stories, feature-length stories, and report on, on, on the situation, they're quite valuable. But, you know, the Bangkok Post, the newspaper of record here in the English language for the last 70 years or so, is staffed by, you know, one and a half people at the moment. I mean, you know, it's just, right. you know, the, 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 con the conventional media is gutted across the region. Jakarta Post, Bangkok Post, I mean, in the English language, the, the, the vernacular language newspapers like Kompas, Thairat here in, in Thailand. I mean, Utusan Malaysia in, 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 in Malaysia almost completely died and was revived. Um, they have a slightly better time of it if they have advertising and, 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 and people you know, manage to sell copies. Um, but it, it really is a tough business. And so the real hope is that intellectuals, people who value the, the skills of reporting, um, will put money behind and support the emergence of these, these new online publications. And I think the other point here is that there's increasingly, and here in Thailand it's very true, there's increasingly a movement 
to moderate the online space, hmm. to fact check the online space. We've been involved in a, in a fact checking exercise online that has basically been set up to, to ensure that rumors don't spread and, and affect protest movements and cause more violence. So it's called COFACT. And it basically is a panel of people who simply sift through what's online and, and decide what's true, you know, and, and put out sort of messages about what's not true in particular um, to prevent rumors spreading. And it's quite an important um, yeah. and valuable contribution. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to ask about conflict and violence. Um, you know, most of us, we, uh, we run away from the fire, but your career, your job has been to run toward the fire. Um, most of us, if, if violence comes to our country, we are very scared and we want to get away from it. But you, on the other hand, well, you're drawn to it. And, and you know, you write fiction as well as the nonfiction. And now you're working in conflict resolution, which is obviously involved in, in violence again. Do you think that, that, that perhaps your mind has been uh, a little focused too much on violence, that, that perhaps you do see this place as an inherently violent place or, or, or are these um, isolated violence? Well, I think it's a bit of a myth that Southeast Asia is a violent place. There's a lot of conflict. Um, there's a lot of unaddressed, unresolved, vintage conflict going back decades. Um, but there's not a lot of fighting, frankly. I mean, people don't like to fight in this part of the world. It's hot, it's difficult, you're never gonna win. The landscape doesn't lend itself to sort of open warfare, it never has. And actually there's, there's never a lot of fighting. But the reasons why the conflicts persist is because it's really difficult to bring people together and resolve them when one side is gonna lose and the other side's gonna win. And, you know, you're always looking for the face-saving solution. And there really often isn't one. So I think I've spent the last 16 years working at the coalface of conflict in a region where most of these conflicts are historical, long in the tooth. The fighting is episodic. The army makes a great deal of money in many of these countries maintaining security. And the armed groups, at least in, in Myanmar, I think this is very much the case, they mostly make money out of the underground economy and taxing their people. And they fight very, very little. You know, we saw an outbreak after the 2001 attacks in New York and Washington of, of militant Islamic extremism, and there were terrorist attacks. But actually, you know, that's not a norm in this part of the world. This is not Afghanistan. This is not Syria. I mean, people generally, as you said, they run away from fighting. They want to avoid confrontation. But what has really made it very difficult to resolve conflicts, the reluctance of the stakeholders to settle things, because it will mean a loss of faith, a loss of dignity. I mean, when I, often when I talk to armed groups in this part of the world, they say the most difficult thing of all is, you know, what are they going to tell the families of people who've fought and died over the years that they've simply, you know, put down their weapons and settled? You know, it's a, it's a huge issue of dignity. Is that Asian, that face? Yeah, it's very, it's, you know, it's not, I mean, I'm struck in the Middle East, for instance, how people are very practical about these things. It takes a lot, you know, once things are agreed, they're agreed. In this part of the world, form is so much more important than substance. You know, often the substance of resolving these conflicts, it doesn't take very much. It's not, there's not, you know, it's just providing a bit more autonomy here or, bit more education there, allowing people to use a language. But, you know, in some of these states, 
the form of sovereignty is so much more important than the substance. The theater of it. Yes. So could you talk us through an ideal situation, an ideal conflict, and uh, Michael Vatikiotis gets the call um, to come resolve this one. How do you do this? How, how does your organization get involved? And as you were saying just now, I mean, how do you actually practically and emotionally convince people to, to find a solution, a way out of violence? Artifice. Um, long drawn out discussions. Um, and I think also making sure that there is attention paid. I mean, very often the enemy of conflict resolution in this part of the world, because there's not a lot of actual fighting or suffering, is simply getting people to pay attention at a higher level and say, look, this is worth resolving. This is worth you know, investing in. Um, the Philippines did this in, in 2014. You know, they negotiated a, a pretty serious comprehensive peace agreement to end the, the war in Mindanao. Um, it took such a lot of effort. And, uh, and, and e- even now, the problem is that the agreement itself, which is in the course of being implemented, to keep the government and the parties in the conflict focused on implementation is very, very difficult. I mean, the pandemic, of course, hasn't helped. But people lose interest and move on. This is a part of the world where form over substance is important, but also people just want to avoid getting into situations where they, they're in fixed positions. You know, there's a, there's a great desire to keep things flexible. And that's the enemy of agreement. You know, I mean, a formal solemn agreement to fix something means that you commit to certain actions or, or decisions that governments and, and even armed groups are reluctant to make because they just like to keep it flexible. There's a, there's a great reluctance to take responsibility and to lock yourself into positions from which you may want to move later on. But, but if I may though, particularly in the case of uh, Myanmar, as I understand it, uh, one side wishes to exterminate another side. Is there room for compromise there? Which side are you talking about? The official, the government side, say. The, the military. And so, the Rohingya. So, again, Burma, of course, is the ultimate victim of the legacy of the colonial era because of all the classification that the British introduced which means that people are more different than they actually are. According to classification of 137, or is it 135, official ethnic groups in Myanmar. Um, and if you're not one of them, you're not a citizen. And that was purely a colonial legacy. And this, this culture of classification, you know, makes it very, very hard to accept people who speak similar languages, have similar cultures, and live in the same place. Actually, the whole, if you like, source of these conflicts is, is simply that classification. They're often not even really fighting over territory. So, you know, with the ethnic conflicts in in Myanmar, the modern context is very different from what it was 70 years ago. Today, in many of these areas, especially urban areas, the Burmese, huge numbers of Burmese actually live in these areas. So the ethnic groups can't really say that their areas are homogeneous anymore. And so what remains is this horrible, horrible legacy uh, of a promise of federalism which in a modern context, especially in Southeast Asia, is is hard to do when you have very centralized concepts of statehood. And it's very, very hard to decentralize. I mean, Malaysia's progressively become less and less federal over the years. 
Indonesia decentralized and then regretted it. It's, it, you know, self-government and autonomy is, is very, very hard to practice in the Southeast Asian context um, where power is absolute and centralized. Um, and elites essentially run the countries and they don't really want to set up, if you like, competition for themselves in different areas. And so that's the source of these conflicts, really. But if people are self-identifyingly, say, Rohingya, um, and they say, yeah, I'm Rohingya and I'm not Burman. And if they wish to remain that or, and Burmans wish to eliminate that, then, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a very zero-sum game. I, I'm just wondering, you know, for you, how to, to get involved with that, if one side is really out to finish off it's another. It's very difficult because, you know, the, the, Burm, the Burmans, the Burman, um, insist that the Rohingyas are Bengalis. But again, based entirely on this colonial fiction, um, and now you've had the added complication that the Rakhine themselves, living in Rakhine state, the Buddhist Rakhine, have also used this opportunity to declare themselves as non-Burman. You know, we're Rakhine, and they have, for the last three or four years, fought a very successful insurgency against the central government, and now virtually have a, a self-governing territory um, of Rakhine. And when you ask the Rakhine about the Rohingya, they say, oh, yeah. Uh, they, they've lived here for a long time. They could, they could continue to live here. So the, the, the whole situation has become much, much worse now because the Rakhine, who now distinguish themselves from the, the majority Burman, have fought to carve out Rakhine state as, a, as, a, as an autonomous entity. And so when and if the Rohingya come back, they'll be coming back to a Rakhine entity where historically the relationship between them was not quite as bad as it was painted, but was never really all that harmonious either. I mean, sometimes, though, with conflicts, are there ever occasions in conflicts where a conflict needs to happen for as long as it needs to happen? No, I think, as for the reasons that I've outlined earlier, I mean, these, these conflicts are artificially maintained. You know, in, in reality, the moros of the southern Philippines essentially do run their own show. But now they have, under the peace agreement, they now have to set up all sorts of organiz you know, organs of government, which they're not doing terribly successfully. Many of these areas, you know, are far away and remote from, from central government. And, and, and what they're fighting for is, you know, not something that's all that difficult to grant. But yes, I mean, it, it, I, I, I find that I find myself wondering why on earth they continue. And it's largely because central government doesn't know how to behave well in these contexts, because security forces actually use these conflicts to pad out their budgets. And because the movements, the armed movements, are, it's too profitable for them sometimes. You know, they're making money out of the underground economy, taxing people, you know, buying and selling arms. It's, it's a profitable business conflict. I would imagine, though, that when you uh, speak to all these, the various um, actors in this conflict, you, you don't speak quite as frankly as that. You're, you're, you're probably much more accommodating and uh, understanding. Yeah. But, you know, one has to really be realistic at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, Michael, um, you are a font of knowledge and uh, an experience in Southeast Asia, but we must uh, wrap up now. And one thing that uh, we always do here at A Better Culture, we wrap up, is we ask um, people for a recommendation. So recommend something, perhaps connected with what we've been talking about, but it could be anything, anything, any cultural uh, experience that you've had that you'd like to recommend to people. Well, the other day I watched... Malaysia's foremost actor, Joe Kukadas, gave a lecture on, I think it was an ANU platform, about grief and loss in the pandemic, which was a real tour de force, I thought, because it was ostensibly about 
artists and how they fared in the pandemic, but it was actually about much bigger topics than that. And it was the first time I've seen anyone really talk about the pandemic from a deeply personal psychological perspective and how it affects our culture and our perception of the world around us. And I mean, we all know and love Jo, and, and she, of course, used a number of very, I think, useful cultural symbols from the Western world, for the most part, but also from, from Southeast Asia to illustrate um, this stupendous tour de force, really. I recommend it to anyone who can go and see it on YouTube. I think you just have to Google Joe Kulkadas, grief and loss, and you'll find it. Great. Wonderful. And, uh, and I'll do a quick recommendation, which would be uh, Michael's book, Michael Vatikiotis, his book, Blood and Silk, where he charts his experience being here in Southeast Asia al alongside, so it's not a personal journey, but also an, ins uh, an inspection of, of, of the various places that he's been. So, uh, well, thank you, Michael. And um, you're in Bangkok now, but you're about to travel and, and resolve some conflict somewhere? I'm about to go to Europe for the summer, see my mother and also the head office and do the best I can in the current situation to move around and try to be useful. Yeah, well. Great. And I have a new book coming out, which I could give a little plug for. Okay. Um, because it's um, a family memoir about my family in the Middle East. It's called Lives Between the Lines, um, A Journey in Search of the Lost Levant, which is published in, in early August in London. So I'll be there for that. Wonderful. I'd, I'd love to get that. I, I, your family history out there, which we've barely talked about here, um, is fascinating um, out in... In, uh, you're in Egypt. Your, your family was also in Egypt, were they not? And, Egypt and Palestine. Yeah. Uh, Greek in, Greeks in Egypt and in Palestine. Greeks uh, in Palestine, Italians in Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Michael. And um, thank you, listeners. Um, and uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Better Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.